0: I take it you've got a couple of things on the list. Let's report back. Let's get a bit of a um, compiled list up here going. You guys have the right answers. Give me your top two. Okay. Top two. Top two. That aren't already listed. Top two, not listed. We said love him and others and uh, spread his news. Love God, love others, L G L O. Evangelize. <laughs> Got that from a youth t shirt. Top two, not listed. Already listed. Top two, not listed. Us? Nope, right in front of you. And study. <laughs> Back, top two not listed. Well, we recited, Micah, six, what? That's five things. Justice <laughs> Okay, whatever. Uh, back here, top two, not listed. I get, I get it. I get it. I get it. You can take them before the board later. Any other ones? Not listed? Image bears, yeah. Brown family, top two not listed. All right, guys, you guys got any new ones with them? Okay, I like this list. This is a really, really good list. Of course, what we're trying to point home is that so much of the Old Testament thus far has been, um, has been written in light of that famous verse. Can anybody tell me that very early verse that kind of sets the standards for God's expectations? Brandon, I'll be shocked because you haven't been here. But what do you got? Okay, stretching. Can okay, anybody remember this this flagship verse at the beginning of the Bible? First chapter that kind of sets the standard for what God expects. In the beginning, God created them. In heaven, but their everybody turn to Genesis one twenty-eight. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Basically God God's first directives on humanity. We've said this every week is Be fruitful, have babies, spread out over the entire earth, and subdue the earth and control it and exercise God's dominion over it as His image bearers. So, actually, Lowell's team won. They got it the most. They got the stewardship. However, for the most part, we're going to see, moving up through through the first half of tonight, which we'll get through the Exodus, this is generally God's expectation of humanity. And then whenever the Israelites come out of Egypt and they start to wander in the wilderness, you're all of a sudden going to see God's expectations don't change, but there's a new emphasis on morality and holiness. And you're going to see this significant shift in how the Bible speaks about God's expectations. Genesis 128 is still in effect today. And yet we'll see when the nation comes out of Egypt, there are additional expectations, over 600, that God puts on them. And it's important to understand all of this in um, in light of what God truly does expect if genesis one twenty eight is that flagship verse should have it memorized three well, let's let's talk about this real quick before we jump into the exodus. We have talked Paul fibs actually has said a, a number of times, and I love the way he described it, we have woefully become in kind of the the condescending sense of the phrase, New Testament Christians. We're very, very familiar with our Gospels. We love the Book of Acts. We love Romans. And, uh, and Revelation confuses us. But we love the New Testament because that's kind of where we get all of our identity from. And if I were to say, do you know your New or your Old Testament better? i will be shocked if 99 or at probably 100% of the room would say, no, I know the New better. Like, if you started rattling off verses, I'll say, oh, that's John. That's that's Romans 8:20. Like I just know these plates. I'm not as familiar with the Old Testament, and yet we see the Old Testament is the vast majority, and, quite, and by a long shot, of our Scriptures. We got one Bible translator in here, so he'll know a lot more of it than we all do. But this is a group question right here. Just shout it out if you know the answer. What New Testament book quotes or alludes to the Old Testament more than any other? we got an answer. Hebrews. Anybody else want to throw up an answer? Huh? Matthew. Good, good, good choice. Anybody else? It's actually Revelation. Uh-huh. <laughs> Revelation never quotes the Old Testament, not even once, but alludes to it, meaning it draws on the imagery of the, of the Old Testament. It assumes its readers know their Old Testaments, it, it alludes to the Old Covenant somewhere between, conservatively, 250 and 500 times. Now, how many chapters does Revelation have? 22 chapters. At least 250 references to the Old Testament. Now do we begin to understand why we, don't, why we have a hard time reading that book. We don't know our Old Testaments. So all the images fall on deaf ears. When John the Apostle is writing things and he's using images of the sea at the end of Revelation 12, the beast, Satan, is standing at the edge of the sea. Well, we don't know what that means. Like that's, okay, is it the Sea of Galilee or the Mediterranean? No, actually it's just an image because the, uh, the Israelites were terrified of the sea. The sea, to a Jewish mind, represents chaos and confusion and the unknowable. That's a place where I wouldn't dare go. and that, that, So it would make sense that John would say that's where the beast lurks. He lurks on the edge of chaos. He's waiting to devour you like the sea would. You're terrified of it. But we miss this when we read it because we don't know our Old Testaments. And so that's why in this whole study we really hope that though we are moving at a breakneck pace, and we really are through the Old Testament, that you'll say, okay, these things are important. It it matters what happens from Exodus 15 all the way to Ruth 4, which is what Scott's going to cover. It matters what happens in that, because that's, that's, that's critical for our understanding of the New Testament. That being said, I would never claim that the New Testament and the Old Testament have equal value. They're both necessary, but they're not equally valuable. I would say the four, the four accounts of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension are the most critical things we have. If you were to lock me away on a desert island for the rest of my life and say you can have one small section of scripture, I would say give me John 13-20. through 20. I don't need anything else. Those are the chapters I want. If I could have nothing else, I want John 13-20. through 20. It tells me all about Jesus, God, and the Spirit, and their expectations of me. Love those passages. So it's not like the New Testament and the Old Testament are equal, but you must be familiar with both in order to understand them. Um, last thing before we jump in. this we're going to talk tonight about several of those critical, critical, critical passages. Genesis 1: 128. you ought to have that memorized. Genesis 12, that's God's covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, that's when God ratifies the covenant with Abraham. Tonight we're going to hit four chapters that I think you ought to know what they're talking about. Exodus three, Exodus 12, Exodus 20, and Exodus 32 four crucial chapters, in particularly the book of Exodus, though we'll cover more than that, that you ought to at least be familiar with the story. I don't need you to memorize it word for word. Exodus 3, the call of Moses, that's the burning bush. Exodus 12, that's the Passover. Exodus 20, that is the giving of the Ten Commandments, the first account. That The other one would be Deuteronomy 5. And then Exodus 32 is the golden calf. These are essential passages for us to be familiar with if we're to be literate Christians, biblically literate Christians. Moving on. We're going to jump into our passages today. Moss finished last week with, um, he ended with Joseph. And so Joseph has his brothers in the, in the land of Egypt. His father has died. They've gone off to bury him. they brought them back to Egypt. Blah, 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 blah. Now we move into Exodus. And this is, the, this is an entirely new account of what's going on. Remember Genesis 128 when I read these first couple of verses of the book of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin; Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But, and here Genesis one twenty-eight in this, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God is achieving what he set out to do. The instructions he gave to Adam and Eve that your descendants are to fill the world and multiply and subdue it. That is taking place even though they're currently in a foreign land. Not yet in the land promised to them. But if you go read Genesis 15, the fact that they're here was promised to them. So they are in Egypt now. Joseph was held in high regard from by Pharaoh, correct? Left well, Pharaoh dies and there's actually if you look at the Egyptian history there's a bit of a turnover in terms of the dynasty. They go from a Semitic dynasty that would be someone who generally has bloodlines related to that of Joseph to um, a, a different dynasty. Uh, there's a turn and now we're not necessarily people groups with familiar bloodlines and they the, the family of Joseph is forgotten. They fall out of favor with the Egyptian rulers and they are oppressed. They are they are no longer just residents in the land. They are enslaved. They are going to um, they're going to build up the, the the storehouses of Pharaoh, and and it continues to get harder and harder and harder for them. Then we have um, uh, there's a bit of a problem when you have a very strong, thriving nation that you're trying to subdue and utilize their labor, growing in your backyard. So what you got to do is you got to start killing off their sons so they stop growing so much. If, if we're going to keep the, the Israelites at bay, we need to start killing their kids. So the order is given that the Hebrew midwives are to deliver the children, and if it comes out and it's a boy, they're to kill it. And if it's a girl, let it live. And in so doing, we'll slow down the population of this, this increasingly powerful nation that we're trying to oppress. You know, the only problem is, here's your first, one of your first examples of civil disobedience, the... Hebrew midwives don't do that. They, they go and tell the leadership, look, I, like the, the Hebrew women are really, really good at giving birth, so much so that they've already done it by the time we get there, so we don't even know if they've had boys, because they don't need us. They don't need us to deliver their kids. Clearly lying, but the point is that they are, they are maintaining their call to be God's people and to, to f- be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, we see a little boy born named Moses, right? Moses' mom hides him for a little while, as long as she can. But eventually she just, like, I can't, this is unsustainable. It's going to bring down, you know, um, persecution on my house if we're found to have been lying to the authorities. So, builds a basket, makes it relatively waterproof, puts him in it, floats him down the Nile. Who finds him? Pharaoh's daughter. And, and the problem is, I, I can't, I, I need to take care of this child, though he will be mine Fortunately, Moses' older sister has been following him, says, hey, you need someone to nurse that? I know a lady. And so she says, sure. Moses is, is nursed by his mother and, and raised to some degree. You could, you could say he was raised until the age of one, possibly two, maybe even the age of 12. It's kind of hard to tell from the text how old he was before. He was done being raised by his birth mother, and then he transitioned into Pharaoh's household as the son of Pharaoh's daughters, the grandson of Pharaoh. Now imagine all the privilege and prestige that goes with growing up in the household of the ruler of one of the most powerful dynasties in the world at the time. Moses had he grew up with great privilege. Would have been much training in language, in religions, in mathematics, in engineering. He would have received the best education possible. He would have, he would have not wanted for anything in Pharaoh's household. And, and you can divide Moses' life up into relatively three sections of 40 years at the age of 40, he realizes, my people are being oppressed. He, he strikes down an Egyptian who is treating the Hebrews severely, buries them in the sand. Next day, he comes to try to break up a scuffle between two Hebrews and say, what, are you going to kill us like you killed that, that Egyptian? Moses realizes he's found out and he runs, because now Pharaoh's trying to kill him. So he runs off into the wilderness, meets a family, settles down and becomes a shepherd, has a wife, and that brings us to Exodus 3. Exodus 3 is one of those flagship chapters that you, we're all generally aware of, but there's so much here that we ought to very much be aware of. Here's Exodus 3. Moses is out tending his flocks and he sees a bush burning, right? We know this story. He sees a bush burning, but it's not consumed. So he turns aside, and there's a lot made in many commentaries about the fact that he turned and the Lord waited for him to turn and notice him. I don't know if there's a whole lot of weight to bear there, but it's interesting. Moses goes and he realizes that he is having an encounter with God himself. The angel of the Lord, it says in many texts. It says, you're standing on holy ground. And he charges Moses with going back to Egypt and being the arm of the Lord, being the, the one who will deliver the Israelites that God is going to use him as a tool of deliverance. Moses, at this point, has become somewhat of a coward. Clearly not the same guy that would just kill a guy for, you know, 40 years ago. Moses says, I, I can't do this. I can't go back. Like This is a place where I'm wanted. This is a place where I've done something wrong. I can't do this. Who am I supposed to say sent me? And you get this famous, famous account. So Exodus 3, starting in verse 7. Then the Lord said... I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and who have heard their cry. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. You can circle deliver. That is a a word that in other places in the Old Testament is translated as redeem. You'll start to see this theme pop up quite a bit in the Exodus account. Come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said, to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. That's what God says. It's not nothing about you, Moses. It will be my presence that matters. That will be the distinctive thing. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign of you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He says, you know how I how you can trust me? Because after you've gone through this difficulty and you've done what I said you should do, you'll come out and you'll worship me with the nation here. I love how God just always calls a shot. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And you'll see the proof. You just need to trust me for now. But you'll see the proof. And then skip down to verse 13. Well, I guess that's where we are. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? You see, Moses is going back to Egypt, to one of the most polytheistic cultures in the world at this time. This is, this is pre-Hinduism, pre-Buddhism, this is pre-animism, this is a very, very ancient polytheistic religion. The Egyptians had, at this point in history, somewhere between 80 and 90 gods of various types. And we'll talk about that when we get to the plagues. Eighty to ninety gods. And you have to wonder how much the Hebrews have assimilated to the culture around them. How much they've bought in whenever they get into the wilderness. You'll see how much they picked up while they were in Egypt. And Moses says, What about you will distinguish yourself from Horus, from Osiris, from Ra? What about you is going to be different than all of these Egyptian gods? What should I say to them? Here's what God says. God says to Moses... I am who I am. You could say, I am the being one. I am the existing one. I am the one that just is. And, and the implication is, there was no beginning to me. I am the forever existing one. The one that, is, that precedes anything else. I just exist. There's no beginning. There's no end to me, God says. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital O, R, D. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. So God gives his name. Up until this point, God throughout the, the, the Old Testament has been known as Elohim, El, El Shaddai. He has, he's had a number of names, but not necessarily the Lord, as it's rendered in your Bibles. Capitals, all capitals. God gave his personal name here. And this, if we're, if we're in writing in Hebrew, Yod Het Bav Het which translates into English letters Y-H-W-H. Hebrew didn't have vowels at the time. It was just all consonants. You just had to know the language. But we can go in here and say there was an A sound in there and an E sound in there. But Hebrew is written this way. Yahweh. God gave His name. So when you see capital L, capital all capitals, Lord, in the Scriptures, that's His personal name, Yahweh. And by the way, this is... This is our best guess to what the vowels say. It's so, such a sacred name that they actually abandon saying it rather quickly out of reverence. And you see a lot of um, conservative Jewish people today, when they write God's name, they'll do this. Cracks me up. To omit the vowels is more reverent. I just laugh. But, that's, that's, but I, I even understand their posture. His name is so perfect and holy, I wouldn't dare profane it by mispronouncing it, so I just will never say it. I'll just call him El or Elohim. But God reveals himself as a personal God. I'm not just the God or a God or the Lord. Here's my name. It's rather impersonal if I come up to you and just say, Hey, I'm a guy. I'm a man. There's something more personal I come up and say, Hey, my name is Ryan. And that's what God says. Go tell him, my name is Yahweh. And that's who is going to deliver you. Now, when Moses gets to Egypt he's he, he there's there's a number of events that we're going to have to skip over but he he lands in Egypt with his brother Aaron. Aaron is the spokesman, Moses is for the most part the the divine current carrier. God God will work his miracles through Moses so you have Moses, who some would contend had a speech impediment he talks about. He is, he is not that great of a speaker. And he's got his brother, Aaron, who will eventually establish the priesthood, or the one through whom God establishes the priesthood. And they go to Egypt It's say, Pharaoh, you need to let our people go that, so that we can go out in the wilderness and worship our God. He says, no chance, which God said he would do. Here's the problem that you're going to encounter in the Exodus account. If you're a big fan of free will, which I am, free will of humanity to do as they so please, God says that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And over and over and over again, it says that God hardens his heart. We'll deal with that in here in a little bit. But Moses says, you need to do this or else God is going to begin to demonstrate his power. Now, I have always read the ten plagues. That we, we are aware this, that there are ten plagues. I've always read these as God just kind of showing off in terms of his abilities. Like, hey, isn't this cool? Like, I can make... Plates spin on sticks. Like, isn't this fascinating? And it's, in a sense, showing his power. But if you go through and you study Egyptian religions, what he's doing is he is systematically attacking 10 Egyptian gods and proving himself supreme over 10 things or people or objects or whatever that Egyptians held sacred and thought had some sort of power. So, what's he start with? Turns the Nile to blood. Now, why would you attack the Nile? Egypt is nothing without the Nile. Egypt is a big piece of garbage sand without the Nile. It's the Nile that makes the land fertile. It's the Nile that allows for the shipping routes. It's the Nile that is the ultimate source of all of the power in the country of Egypt. And God comes in and says, yeah, I can mess that up. Turn it into blood. Now it's useless. The the fish you fish for, useless, dead. How is that blood going to make the fields fertile? He demonstrates his power over the Nile. The magicians, it's funny, the magicians um, uh, in Pharaoh's court can for a time keep up with Moses toe to toe. They can turn water to blood too. There's some demonic work going on here. Second plague, this would be the beginning of chapter 8. Frogs in the land. I'm not going to go through, I would love to talk with you through it, but we just don't have time. I'm not going to go through every god that is assaulted, but there are various sacred things that are assaulted throughout. But we need to get through the plagues because there's some important stuff in chapter 12. So, in chapter 8, there are frogs in all the lands. The Egyptian uh, magicians go toe-to-toe with Moses and Aaron there too. The third plague, in the uh, middle of chapter 8, there are dust that becomes gnats. And, ext- and not gnats like Oklahoma gnats, like these are stinging gnats. Egypt has very pesky gnats. Um, and, uh, and the magicians, they, they can't keep up with this. Now, it's important to realize these first three plagues affected everybody, Israelites included. These were general annoyances, complicated things, but not, detriment, not a detriment to society at large. Now you're going to see God in seven plagues start to dismantle the nation and to cripple it economically, religiously, socially. He's going to just start to bury Egypt. The fact that Egypt could move on past this is quite incredible, and it actually probably took them a while to recover from what God did here. So first three plagues affects everybody, even the Israelites in the land of Goshen. Plague four, flies in the royal palace. We are told in this account that there, that there is a difference between Israel and Egypt. Israel will not be affected by this plague, just the Egyptians. All of a sudden, if you're one of those biblical commentators that wants to say that all of these plagues were just natural disasters, natural circumstances, you've lost your ability to say that because now the plagues are distinguishing between people groups. Flies in the royal palace. At this point, Pharaoh says, okay, here's, I got a compromise. I got a compromise. This, this is starting to really bother me. So I'm going to let you guys go sacrifice, but you have to do it within the Egyptian borders. Go, go do your thing, but stay relatively close. And Moses says, no way. He says, okay, I got, an, I got another idea. You guys can go sacrifice, but just go beyond the border, just barely, basically, where I can still get to you with my armies if necessary. Moses says, no way. Not happening. Plague 5. The death of the domestic animals that were in the fields. This would have been a rough one, because all of a sudden you're dealing with people's livelihoods. You're dealing with animals that Egyptians held as sacred. Go look at their gods. They are all personified with drawings of animals. And God comes in and just mows them down kills them. Plague number six, ashes, dust, and boil. They throw ashes in the air, and, uh, and everybody has these boils all over them. Just gross. That's actually one of the plagues I would have really wanted to see. That was, that was pretty cool. But, Pharaoh at this point is still calling his magicians. I don't know. He's kind of naive. Maybe his heart is hard. I don't know. But he's still calling his magicians. That was a Bible joke, by the way. Um, He's still calling his magicians. And they are impotent to do anything about it. They actually say, we are so severely affected by these boils that we are not coming anywhere near you. We're not doing this. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened still. Plague number seven. Hail and fire rain down and destroy any animals that happen to be left from the earlier plagues and uh... plague eight locusts come from the east and if any plants weren't destroyed by the hail and the fire now they will be just chewed up by these locusts and you see god just tearing the nation to shreds killing off the livestock hurting the people injuring them with medical problems killing off any remaining livestock and damaging all of the crops and then if that's not enough, let me send in a plague of locusts to just polish it off. Egypt is now longing for the days of the famine when Joseph was in charge because all of their economic prosperity is just being assaulted by the God of the universe. Plague 9, darkness in the land which is described as a darkness that is so dark you could feel it and, and there's nothing to... and again... Israel's not affected by these plagues. The, god is distinguishing between his people and those who are against his people. This would have been an incredible assault on one particular God. When you darken the skies, you are dealing with you are proving your supremacy over probably one of the most prominent Egyptian gods, the sun god Ra. And and God says, Ra is nothing. Watch me shut Ra down, a darkness so dark you could feel it. And, and he is establishing his supremacy over every Egyptian god. And, and we'll talk about here in a second what, what his purpose behind all of this was. Because it was there were many layers to it, both for the Egyptians and for the Israelites. And then we get to the tenth plague, which we know is the death of the firstborn. God says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to kill off the firstborn son in every family. And and Here's, the, here's your ability to make sure that I only discriminate against those who are against me. I'm not going to just pick Israel and Egypt. I'm going to pass over the homes that have done what? Slaughtered a lamb, rubbed its blood on the doorposts and the lintel with a hyssop branch. Now, for a roomful of Admitted New Testament Christians, we see the connection now. What was the distinguishing mark of the Israelites? And here's where I would li- here's where I would like Paul. You should have used this illustration. It was not their circumcision. It was not their Jewish or Hebrew language. It was not their dress. It was not their cultural distinctives. It was nothing that distinguished them from the Egyptian households except Blood from a perfect lamb that was covering over them. Now It's also interesting to look into the text because we always assume, I think, or at least I did, always assumed that it was uh, an angel of death that comes through and mows down the firstborn sons of Egypt. And if you read it, it's God himself that comes in and kills them. And this is is where we've got to deal with certain things whenever we want to just sell God as this gentle gentle deity who always is going to just kind of coddle you. Because this is the same God that mowed down a nation of firstborn sons, just killed them. And, And I would argue rightfully so, not in a bloodthirsty, megalomaniac type way. Rightfully so, with all of his justice maintained and upheld. But here's, let's read in chapter 12, a very, very important chapter for us. Chapter 12, starting in verse 12. God, Yahweh, it says is saying to Moses, this is the Lord's Passover, verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. You see, he just, he just basically said what the plagues were. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the lands of Egypt. So, this is an incredible display of God's kindness. Now, one other thing I want you to notice. Skip down to verse 21. So, he, he goes and he describes that this is going to be a... A, a, a feast, some, a, a festival that will be instituted throughout the, the history of the nation going forward. And then starting in verse 21, Then Moses called on all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, uh, of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Hyssop branches, you'll see an important use of them in the New Testament. But if you look throughout Leviticus and in um, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where the hyssop branch is typically used, is used in purification ceremonies. So, when blood is applied using the hyssop branch, I think that we can see some imagery that there is redemption, there is deliverance, there is a passing over of one's wrongs, of one's uh, helplessness before God because of the blood. And, I, and I, I love that this picture of it was applied with hyssop, that there's, there's something of an, expecta- an expectation, there's a purification going on, a, a movement towards holiness that we will see going forward. Now this, um, clearly the blood points us towards Jesus, and the killing of the firstborn is God's final assault on the gods of Egypt. Who was Pharaoh in the eyes of most Egyptians? He was a god. How powerful are you if you are powerful enough to kill a God's son, who himself is considered deity? That is God putting the stamp on his supremacy over all of the idolatry going on in Egypt. Um, we, won't, we won't read it for the sake of time, but if, if you want to go and see how this stuff is all applied, go read the, all the Gospels, have it, but go read Luke 22 great chapter that de- that describes both the passover meal that Jesus has with his followers and uh, and you'll see that the, the 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 wine represents the blood that was used and then the breaking of bread is kind of the feast of the unleavened bread that was instituted as a celebration for leaving egypt and with that they plunder the egyptians the egyptians hand over all their goods all their jewelry just as God said they would and the nation goes out. And they they run into some things. You have the the Egyptians chasing after them, the parting of the great... We're not going to go through all of that, but they have left Egypt. And I want to draw our attention to a couple of things. The plagues show four separate things, or four important things, that I think we need to take a look at. There are several things that we need to see here. The plagues, first, were designed to free the people of God. They were redemptive in nature. They were intended to free the people of God, therefore they were redemptive in nature. Two, they were a punishment on Egypt. They're described as being a punishment on the Egyptians for their oppression on the Hebrews. So, in that sense, the plagues were also a judgment. And I know that that doesn't always have an E there, but whatever. You can spell it both ways. Three, the plagues were designed to demonstrate the foolishness of idolatry. You want me to show you how stupid idolatry is? Watch me assault all of these gods you think are so impressive. And one by one, they fall. And so, in that sense, they were um, revelation. The plagues told the truth about who the true God is. And then four, they clearly demonstrated the awesome power of our sovereign God. They were intended to bring Him glory. So the plagues are not just cool stories of God doing magic tricks. They are pictures of Him redeeming a nation, judging another nation, and revealing who He is in a way that He would bring Him glory. It's, I actually read a really good article this week by a guy named, if you want to go look at it, his name is Peter Lightheart. And he writes for a, a um, you call it a magazine, I don't know, a association called First Things. And he draws a beautiful picture between the ten plagues in Egypt, the first three of which actually were kind of directed to everybody as a whole, the last seven towards those who were against God, and ten plagues in Revelation, the first three that are actually experienced by the people of God, and then the last seven which are poured out on those who hate God. The, the connections aren't perfectly clear, but it's fascinating to read him say there's this incredible consistency between how God works in Exodus and in all the way at the end of time in the Revelation. <clears throat> Here's a couple things we can take away. One, we should always know that the same God who humbled Pharaoh, who was able to dismantle the most powerful nation at the time, is the same God who is in control when silly people like ISIS, North Korea, and such are in power. This is where like, I can read the Exodus account and, and say, okay, we'll be fine. Like, God is not upstairs shaken in his boots because of what's going on. The same God that could destroy a nation like Egypt and absolutely humble it can do the same thing today. The same God who was able to demonstrate that much power has decided that on his people, he will look on us with unmerited kindness and mercy, which brings us to our knees in worship. That he who has the ability to exact this kind of judgment. Chooses not to and offers us our own Passover lamb. And then finally, the plagues are a testimony to the absolute power of God, his willingness to deliver everyone, and his ability to perform exactly which he promised he would do way back in Genesis 15 when he said, You're going to go into a land, land, land that is not yours for about 400 years. And when that's up, I'll handle it. You'll be fine. Now, most of them are going to die in the desert, but that's their fault. Um, One last thing before I hand it over to Scott. Flip way over to Luke 9. Because the Exodus, here's one reason that it would be helpful for us to study the Exodus well. In Luke 9, you have an account of the transfiguration, where Jesus goes up on the mountain, he's transfigured, and he's with Moses and Elisha. Now listen to this, starting in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, that would be the inner three, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men who were were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which is a word for his exodus spoke of Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You see, if the exodus in the book of Exodus, if God's delivering his people out of a nation, was his way of delivering them from bondage and enslavement, and that which is contrary to the things of God, well, Jesus will do the exact same thing on the cross. And that's what he's discussing with Moses and Elijah. He's talking about his exodus, where he will go and deliver everyone from bondage and the things that are in opposition to God himself. It's important that we study the Old Testament so we can understand the New. Any questions? Thoughts? Okay. Take a three-minute break. Use the restroom. Get a drink, whatever you need. And then Scott will pick it up.
1: Okay, if you have your Bible, open to Genesis 1, hold up, put your finger in Genesis 1 and then go to Exodus 15, Genesis 1, Exodus 15, okay, it's about 58 pages in my Bible, it's this much. Okay, so that's where we spent the last two and a half weeks covering. Um, we, we, we narrowed, narrow focused in on a few key things, some big things in Genesis and uh, now in Exodus. Uh, but this is approximately 4,000 years of history, actually 4,600. So I don't know if you know the timeline of what's going on here, but you've got, you've got 2,000 years. Between Adam and Noah, you have 2,000 years between Noah and Abraham. And you have 2,000 years between Abraham and Jesus. So we've covered 4,600 years. This is where Moses is. He's about here. David is here right at 1,000 years before Christ-ish. So we've covered 4,600 years, um, and only 50 pages-ish, and we're about to cover, so now put from Exodus 16 all the way to Ruth 4. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. That's what I get to cover tonight. And I want to, I just want you to see that even though it's a tenth, less than probably, a tenth of the time. It's about 400 years. We're going to cover about 400 years and it all depends on how you date the Exodus, which we don't have time to get into. But what we're going to say around 400 years, it's less than a tenth of time, but it's, it's, it's about three times as much biblical precedent in terms of pages in your Bible. And so it's just interesting. Why God, so this is a question you can ask as you're reading the Bible. Why would God put that in here? Why would he, why would he talk about that? Why would he skip so many details. And why would he put these, de- these details in? And, and all that, we think, is for a reason, which points to why we're really doing this class, um, is to help you see the bigger picture, to help you see that all of this is heading towards a, 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 um, a beautiful, redemptive, restorative plan in Jesus. So that's what we're going to cover tonight. Um, and I'm going to... I'm going to basically fly through and and kind of give an overview of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Not Genesis, but Exodus, the rest of. And I'm going to time myself so I stay on track because it's easy to get caught up in in some of these details. So I'm, I'm just going to, if you want to walk, if you want to put Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, if you want to put those in places, and I'm going to just give you a few bullets underneath them, to help you see what's happening but basically they're all kinda of telling the same story and they're just highlighting different things and so the story is this you're gonna here's what we're gonna see we're gonna see um, from from where he left off leaving Egypt we're gonna see them get to right actually we don't even deal with crossing the Red Sea we skip that it's just kind of a mine well, my yes yeah, watch the movie uh, it's kinda cool they walk through on dry land is awesome so they get to the other side of the Red Sea. They, they get to Mount Sinai. God gives them the law. They spend, they spend some time there. Um, they reveal how just how short of a memory they have. And then God takes them to the edge of the promised land, which is what he promised he would give them. And then they, uh, they screw up. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then they turn around and they, now they turn back and wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they come back to the edge of the land and that's where we're going to... No, actually, we're going to cross into the land with Joshua. They're going to get the land. They're going to divide up the land. And then it's going to go all downhill, which is Judges. So, so that's where we're going. Okay? Here we go. Um, Exodus. The rest of Exodus, the second half of Exodus, you see, starting right off, you see God... Actually, you see the people grumbling. After God's done all these amazing things, the plagues, the Red Sea... He, he's speaking to them and, and leading them by a, a pillar of fire and, and uh, all these amazing things. They're, they're grumbling, complaining, and God's providing food, manna from heaven, and water from what? A rock. A rock. Like, they're, they're complaining, he's providing. You see them preparing in, in chapter 19, 19, God preparing them for to receive this covenant, which was a huge deal, we'll talk about that towards the end. Um, You see, like like he said in chapter 20, you see the giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, You see in chapter 24 the confirmation of this covenant where the people say, Yes, God, we will do what you say. We will do these things. We will fulfill these requirements. We will do whatever you want. This is what we are here. We're in with you. That's that's 24. And then he spends four or five chapters, six chapters on instructions about the tabernacle, which is a really big deal. We'll talk about that at the end. Then there's a breach in the covenant, which is, which is what he pointed out, Exodus 32 through 34, which is the golden calf. And, and, I, and I want to pause here because um, the verse in Exodus 32, 8, God says, Hey, Moses, you need to go down to your people. By the way, this, this is a fun exercise. In Exodus 32, underline the word, the word you or your. Okay? Whenever you get a chance, underline the word you or or your, in Exodus 32, because it's just really insightful. God uses it. Hey, Moses, you and your people who you brought out of Egypt, you need to go check out what they're doing. And, and Moses is saying, hey, they're your people who you brought out. You know, none of them want to take, but, you know, you have, you have God saying, Moses, go down to your people because they have, the word is, they have turned aside quickly. Turned aside quickly. Just in just this wasn't even months, this is maybe weeks, probably days before when they said in 24, we will do it God, we'll, we're in, we'll do whatever you want. And they quickly forget. A big word in the Bible is the word remember. And I, I think it's a word that probably should be underlined every time it comes up because this is a key, this is a key insight into the human condition. How quickly we forget. How quickly we forget what god who God is, what He has done, who we are, and how we are to live, how quickly we forget and that's that's what exodus thirty two um, teaches us and and i'm I'm so thankful that it's put in there because it's not like, oh you stupid israelites, i can't believe you would forget that you just it's like oh oh yeah that's that's me too, that is me, how quickly I forget um, and so God, you, you see this theme throughout all of Scripture, how, how quickly people forget and turn aside. So, we'll speed back up. And then the, the last half is the assemblance of the tabernacle, which is a big deal we'll talk about. That's, that's the rest of Exodus. Flip over to Leviticus. Leviticus, I'm just going to say a couple things. It's basically a further, deeper understanding or unfolding of Exodus, more laws, more explanations. By the way, there's not just ten laws given there's 613 laws, actually, in the Old Testament. That's, that was 613 laws, and they were to cover any and every situation. And they weren't, they weren't exhaustive by any stretch. They were actually given for a purpose, and we'll talk about that at the end. But here's what we see in Leviticus. We see two things. We see, one, that, that Israel is sinful and impure. That's very obvious, and God is reminding them of that. You're sinful and impure. And then he says, and also... In order for to be in a relationship with me, um, you're going to have to deal with that sin, that sin and that impurity. And so here's how that's going to happen. So he sets up this this sacrificial system, this um, the um, the atoning the atonement process, right? With with Levitical priests that they make sacrifice for the people's sins, and this is the only way in which they can be in the presence of God as if their sin is dealt with, which we are going to touch on in a major way in a few weeks, but that's Leviticus. Now jump to Numbers. Numbers is an interesting word. The word Numbers for, in English is is referencing the the census that's t- that's given in the first four chapters and then also in chapter 26. But the Hebrew word for for this book um, references the wilderness. is actually the Hebrew word for the word w- uh, wilderness. And that's I, I would say that's a, even a better description of what Numbers is. We we see Numbers. I was joking with my kids. Okay, so I'm challenging my my daughters, to, re- to, pick a Bible, to pick a book in the Bible and read this summer. And, and, uh, and one of them said, uh, read Numbers. You know, like that's so boring. Uh, we do think, we think Numbers is boring because the word numbers. But actually the Numbers, numbers is, is more of the story of Israel journeying from Mount Sinai, where they'd given the law. It kind of overlaps Exodus, Leviticus a little bit. It does give some law. But it tells a story of them journeying from um, Mount Sinai to the edges of... The, uh, the, the promised Land. And they get to this land um, miraculously, and and, God's, and they send out how many spies? Twelve. And how many come back? Afraid. Ten and how many come back? You do the math in faith? Yes, two. So you have two. Who are the two? Joshua and Caleb. And so these two come back, and they're saying, "Yeah, this is listen. yeah, it looks difficult, but, but we remember. God is good, and he's provided, and he's sovereign, he'll do it. And the others are like, no, 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 they're really tall, and we're really scared. And all the people said, oh, yeah, I'm scared too. So God said, all right, you're idiots, you're going to wander. So they turn, and, and they wander until that generation dies, is, is basically basically the point. And then he brings them back to the edge. And, and by this time, Aaron's dead, and Moses isn't going in, both of them actually, because they struck a rock instead of speaking to the rock. They struck it out of anger instead of trusting God, and and God says neither one of you are going in. And then shortly after that, Aaron dies. Moses is allowed to climb to the top to peer in, and then he dies. Um, but basically, it's it's it. That's 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 the uh, the end. The end of Numbers actually ends with this this statement, and it, it it's a statement of hope. I think it's verse nine in the very last chapter. It says. That, uh, that each tribe will hold its own inheritance and then uh, and the Numbers ends and Deuteronomy is, an, is a phenomenal book it closes out the, the, the Torah or the Pentateuch the first five books of the Old Testament and the first, the first 30 chapters are basically um, Moses' sermons to the people oops Moses' sermons to the people uh, he, he gives a history of all that God had done. He gives covenant stipulations, a, a re-giving of the Ten Commandments. Um, the Shema is in chapter 6. It's where we get our orange philosophy in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, then you get, you get uh, cu- uh, blessings for obedience in chapter 28-ish and curses for disobedience. Uh, Moses is giving guys listen if we follow this is what God will do if we don't this is what God will do and all that stuff comes true and then the last three three, four chapters of the the book is Moses basically handing it off to Joshua and dying and then you have the end of the Torah and the beginning of the history books which is Joshua so turn to Joshua and turn to Joshua 1 a key so by this time they're at the they're at the edge of the promised land. Moses is dead. Joshua is now anointed leader and he is leading his people into conquer the land and take the land. And so here's the basic outline. Well, let me read this verse. This is a key verse, a key key theme. In Joshua 1:9 I have not have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's huge. So, he leads his people. Here's a basic outline. They cross into the land. They take the land by force. Um, A a key idea throughout Joshua is is God is a divine warrior. Um, This line occurs a few times. The Lord fought for Israel. And they're wiping nations out. Now, there's a lot we could talk about that um, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I have notes that, that aren't aren't gonna make, make it in here. But I want to say this: um, remember what what the people do. Remember the people in Noah's day. Remember the Tower of Babel. Uh, the people in the, in that day. Remember what the people do when they completely disregard God and His commandments. And 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 what what they end up doing to each other. How they live. I mean, all those things. That God is seeking justice, and He's He has a plan. And so he, he is a divine warrior seeking to establish his kingdom. My right, ten minutes are up. That's right, right, I'm almost done with this part. And then, so then they divide up the land into the different tribes, 12 tribes, and then you end with this great promise at the end of Joshua where it says, you know, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So it, Joshua ends on a great note of them serving the Lord. And then Judges happens. And the key line in Judges, anybody, anybody know it? We want to take a stab at it. The key refrain, say that Yeah. Yes. Exactly. The people had no king. Uh, here here's in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And and that is their destruction. And it's not that they didn't it's not that you you can't say, "Oh, God, why didn't you just provide a king?" It's it's that they had rejected God as king, and that's and that's the point, and, and and in fact that comes up in the in Samuel, which we'll get into next week, but they had ultimately rejected God. They stopped following God as king, and they started doing whatever they wanted to do. And so Judges is full of it's got a few moments of he, heroism, but they, but guys like Gideon and, and Samson are the two best guys in the book, and if you read their story, they're not great guys. They make good children's story guys, but they don't make good role models by any stretch of the imagination. Um, And it ends, Judges ends, chapter 19 through 21, ends really bad. Um, And and I think it happens for a purpose, for you to go, oh my gosh, we're doomed. Um, Because it ends with this just terrible story, and and then uh, the way they try to reconcile this You'll have to read it, uh, chapters nineteen through twenty-one. But during this period of judges, there, there's a glimmer of hope, and, it, and it, it, it's a good introduction for next week, where we're going with King David. You have the story of Ruth, and Ruth happens during the time of the judges, and Ruth is this beautiful love story. But that's not really the point. Um, the point is that 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 God has been faithful to provide, to uh, faithful to His promises. He's faithful to provide a king for Israel um, of righteousness. He's faithful to ultimately provide a king that's going to rule and reign um, for all of eternity in Jesus because Ruth and Boaz, the two main characters in, this story, in the story, are in the genealogy of Jesus. You read about them. You can see them in, in Matthew chapter 1. So that is, that is the, the, the 400 years in between Moses and David. So now they're in the Promised Land. Um, next week we'll we'll get into Samuel and introduction of David and and, and his life. Um, but but that's where they're at. So I want to I want to want to I want to spend the rest of our time um, with a couple lenses that I think will help help understand where we're going and what we're doing. So whenever whenever um, I, I think these are two questions that we ask inherently, whenever we talk, whenever God comes up. It's maybe not questions you ask specifically. I'm not going to write the questions, but basically are this. Who is God and what does he want from us? Essentially, you can word it differently. But who is God and what does he want from us? And I think these, these two triangles help me answer that question really, really well and help put in perspective what God is doing. So this first triangle, put, um, put above it, Covenant, covenant relationship. The next one, put kingdom responsibility. That's what these, this, this triangle, and this triangle stand for. At the top of this, put Father. In, in this covenant relationship, you, you have God inviting Abraham and inviting the people of God into relationship with him, and he changes their identity. Um, he, he does it all, but put here, identity, and then out of that identity, that new identity, based on who he is and what he's done, flows obedience. So you have God the Father inviting us into relationship with him, changing our identity, changing the people of Israel's identity. And, and out of that, he's, he's, he's asking for obedience. He's, 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 it, actually, obedience flows naturally and normally because of who they are in him and the relationship he stab, established. And that's all by grace. So you'll begin to see how God establishing this, this covenant with his people, including the law, is really God's grace. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to spell it out for them. He didn't have to help them understand how, um, how they were to live and how they were to worship Him and how they were to pay for the sins and their impurity and 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 how they were to live a life of freedom, um, live a life that um, that they that God had basically designed them to live. How to protect them from certain things and I mean all of that is by grace given. The other this other paradigm. Of who God is he's also king he's on mission and uh, he comes in and he he uh, gives us authority to act on his behalf and the power to to live it out that's what you see with with Moses that's what you see with joshua and and that's ultimately what you're going to see in David is this this kingdom that God is establishing, and so we'll spend more time in the, in next week describing this kingdom that God is establishing in in David but I want to focus on on this on on this this covenant um, and and especially in in two ways: covenant requirements, which we'll talk about the law and then covenant presence, which we'll talk about the tabernacle and the veil. Um, so covenant law, co- covenant requirements. God gives them a law. And if you read through the law, and when we read through the law, especially especially as Westerners at this point in life, um, we, we the way we think about law is different than than the law that was given. Um, we see it and we go, that's just kind of I mean how many of you, when you meet somebody, give just hand them a bunch of rules and say, hey, by the way, nice to meet you. If you want to be friends, here's here's the rules. We go, that's just weird. Nobody does that. Why would you do that? Um, and we have that kind of, I think, visceral reaction to, um, sometimes to to the law. Why would God require all these things and make them do all these things when, when they do one little thing wrong? And man, there, there's this. if you want to, if you want to see how serious God takes the Sabbath, that, that's the one, as I've been reading through, that's the one that jumps out at me the most. He is dead serious about the Sabbath. Like, there's a guy that picks up sticks, God says, kill him. I mean, it is, it's crazy. On the Sabbath, he did. Not just right, on the Sabbath, he picked up sticks. I, didn't, I clarified that part. But, but oh, he says it several times. So, why why so... Why so strict and rigid? And, and what I want you to see is, is God's grace in all of it. it. Is God's grace to say, listen, all the other gods, you're, if, you, if you study, you know, um, the gods during that time, the people would just do things and hope that it works. Like, hey, whatever you did that caused it to rain, do that again, you know? I mean, they were guessing and, and they were trying to appease the gods. And God says, okay, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to tell you how, how to be in relation with me. I'm going to tell you how to live. Um, all these things were given. So, he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. So why was the law given? Uh, turn to Galatians 3. I want to point this out. Galatians chapter 3. Uh, three, verse twenty-three. Paul is going to use an illustration about the law. He's going to he's going to uh, liken the law to this 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 certain um, type of person in in first century. It's called a it's called a is the Greek word, but it's the word guardian. Or I'm not sure how it's used in the NIV. But starting in verse 23, he says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until coming faith in Jesus would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, faith in Jesus has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, through faith. So here, let me explain. This guardian, the guardian's job, um, basically, a, a father of the household would say would hire a guardian. We know this of Ke- of Alexander the Great. He had a he had a guardian, and I believe it was Socrates or Plato, one of the two. I think Socrates. So Socrates was hired to to be the guardian of Alexander the Great's children, son. And there, the guardian's job was basically to raise them after they were weaned from their mother, to raise them as a toddler to old enough to where they could finally follow under the father's footsteps. And so the guardian's job was to teach them and to raise them and ultimately point them to their father and point them to... But they were a slave. The guardian was a slave in the house. Wasn't, a, wasn't an owner in the house at all. And the son was not a, a true heir. And so it's this, it's this beautiful analogy of the true heir was put under the guardian's care until the right time. And the right time came... And the son is now an heir. The son is now next to the Father. The son is now going to take the father's business and all, all that. So, so that's the analogy that he's given in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, Therefore there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. there's is, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are in Christ and if you are Christ's, Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So he right there says, listen, the law was meant to point you to Christ. It was meant to get you there. It was never meant to guard, to watch over you, to to be your Savior, to be your Father. It's always been about Jesus. And so this is what makes sense in in Matthew 5, 17 when Jesus says of, of the law and the prophets. He says, I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Jesus loved the law. He loved we, we, The law gets a bad rap. We think, oh, it's you know, don't live under the law, live under Christ. Jesus loved the law because the law helped the people understand the heart of God and the character of God and the, the, the way in which we are to, to live in a relationship with God. And, and Jesus says, yeah, I didn't come to abolish that as if that was pointless. I came to fulfill that. And now it's me. Live under me. Be in me. is is what Jesus is saying. The law, um, so listen to this, the law was given in order to remain in a relationship with God, Okay, know the heart of God, walk in His ways, live a life that honors God, and then walk in freedom. Um, So, all 613 laws were given to guide the people, guard the people, help the people um, have this relationship with God and do all these things. You, but the same could be said of Jesus. Listen, Jesus was given in order to remain in a relationship with God, have a relationship with God, um, to know the heart of God, to walk in His ways, to live a life that honors God and to walk in freedom. You, you, could, you could see how the law is just setting it up for Jesus to take it over. Um, there's another verse, we don't have a uh, few actually, Hebrews 8, um, which, which quotes Jeremiah 31, which is basically talking about this new covenant. Um, And and the the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus came when, why would you, he's talking to an audience of Jews who are trying to turn back to the law. They have Jesus, and they're wanting to turn back to live under the law. And the author is saying, listen, why, why would you do that? We're living in the times that Jeremiah talked about when a new covenant would come where you don't have to live under the law. The law is now written on your heart, and you'll know God. And 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 you can turn to your neighbor and say, No God. And and he's saying, Listen, why would you go back to living with the law where it's outside you when you can have Jesus who lives inside you and and his law is on your heart, and so now that that now you know the heart of God um, because he lives in you is what he's he's describing. It's big. So that's covenant requirements. There was requirements, there was expectations. For these people, it wasn't just God saying, hey, yeah, by the way, um, if you can, yeah, try to do some of these things. It was like, no, if you, to live in a relationship with me, this is a requirement. And, um, and that set us up for, for Jesus. The next one, covenant presence. And I want to spend just the last few moments on this. Uh, like I said in Exodus, he spends quite a bit of time talking about the tabernacle. Um, If you think about God's presence, rescuing them from Egypt, parting the Red Sea, providing manna and water, um, giving them the law, fighting for them, um, but there's probably no greater picture of God's presence than the tabernacle. It was a big deal. Um, Listen to this. At the end of Exodus, the very last last section of Exodus says this. Exodus 40, 34-38 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tab- tab- tabernacle by day, and fire. Was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. So, if if you look at the way God set up, at some point I can't remember exactly where I should have put this in my notes, Um, you have you have all the the people He puts like you know um, Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh and all these um, all these tribes. He has very specific places where he wants them to camp around the, the tabernacle. But it's all right in the center. This is not to scale, by the way. It's all right in the center. And this is the tabernacle. And then right in here, I'm talking really fast because it's not my notes, you have, you have you have, the tabernacle, you have the tent of the outer court. This is the outer court. You have the holy place. Uh, no, no, no. You have, right? Here, here's the point. You have the Holy of Holies right in the middle, that's all I know. Um, this may be the outer court. This is where the priests go, and this is where the, only the high priest can go, right in the Holy, Holy of Holies, right in the middle. So, so all of Israel, they could step outside their tent or teepee or whatever it is, they, and they could see the cloud, and they could see the fire, and they could know God is with us. That was big, right? Like no other God had that kind of manifestation and, and God's presence was made known and so whenever it would lift it would mean it's time to go pick up the tabernacle we're going and then whenever it would settle it's like okay it's time to stay this is where God wants us um, so tabernacle equals presence so how does this point us to Jesus how does the tabernacle and the presence of God point us to Jesus What was, in in the birth narratives, okay, Matthew 1, Luke 2, what is a name given to Jesus that might give us, to help us with this? What's that? God is with us. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God is with us. So, quick quick fast forward. You have tabernacle, temporary. You have the temple, permanent thing. And same thing, um, smoke and fire. And then you have God, the Israelites doing their thing, which we'll talk about next week. Um, rebellion, idolatry, the whole thing. And eventually the Ark is stolen. The Ark of the Covenant, which, by the way, I didn't bring up. That's where God says, I will meet with you there. And the Ark lived in the Holy of Holies. So it was stolen. All this stuff was happened. And the, the, the inner testimonial period, the period of 400 years between the old and the new, there was no cloud, no fire. And the people wondered, did we... Did we screw up so bad that he's gone? And then the next scene enters, and it's Jesus. and He's Emmanuel. And now he's with us. And if you study the presence of God, there, there's a progressive presence. You have God walking with him in the garden. You have God, okay, sin happens, kicked out of the garden. You have God coming upon them in his power. You have God living in a, in a tabernacle temple. Then you have God walking with them in flesh. And then what's the next step? Holy Spirit dwelling inside. And then you have the very last scene, you have God living with His people. And so there's this progression of presence in, in the Bible that I think is pretty cool. The next thing is this, this veil. And I think there's actually two veils, but the, the main one was this veil right here. It was about 60 feet high, and three inches thick, and it, and it covered, it stopped people from the presence of God. So even though you had the presence of God, the veil meant separation. It meant God is in there, but we're not allowed to go in. There's only one guy that's allowed to go in, and he can only go in one time a year, and man, he better be right before God, because we're going to tie a rope to him and pull him out if he's not. Um, and he'll be dead. So, so it was one day a year the high priests would go in and pay for the sins of the people, because there was separation. Um, and so, does anybody know what happens when Jesus is crucified? The veil is torn. Here's, yes, here's Matthew twenty-seven fifty through fifty-one. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And so God says, boom, no more separation. And then I love this verse in Hebrews chapter 10, um, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with hearts sprinkled cleaned, uh, sprinkled and cleaned from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The, the author of Hebrews is, is again saying, why would you go back to this system and, and live with this separation when you can have Jesus and have, you can enter right into the Holy of Holies. You can enter right into a conversation with God and, and have confidence because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And there's no longer separation between us and Him because of who Christ is and what He's done and because of His Spirit living in us. Okay. Um, any, any any thoughts? Any questions? Maybe, um, what's uh, three bold people that want to say something that's jumped out at them today? Something that's that's helped them see something better or more clearly, or um, and, and not about Ryan and I, but just something that God's word has shown. Yes, there's one bold person. character of God, seen through the law, seen through His commands. In fact, you can this is a, this is a really helpful thing as you're reading through the New Testament especially um, is anytime there's a command anytime there is, like, like Drew has said the, the, the Bible is not a bunch of rules with stories sprinkled in. It is the story of God with some commands sprinkled in to illustrate. Whenever you're reading through the New Testament or even the Old, and, and there's a command God wants me to do this and every command is pointing to an intricate, uh, uh, um, an indicative statement about who God is, a a character of God. Like the reason he wants us to do this is because of who he is, what he's done, and now who we are in him. And so it's uh, something we do with, we talk about with college students um, because it's easy in, in church growing up in high school to say, yeah, I'm not supposed to have sex before marriage. Because it's bad, I could get AIDS. Um, I could get somebody pregnant. Um, it's, it's scare tactics. That Instead of saying no, they're, like it points to the character of God. Like It's, it's saying you don't trust God. You don't trust he's going to provide. It's, it's saying he has a plan. He designed it for a reason. It's saying all these things. Um, and so it's, it's just helping connect these commands to the character of God. So I like that. A couple more.
0: All paths lead
1: to God? Kind yeah. of a. And I just, uh, as everybody who plays, attacked the Egyptian gods. And mm. I just think when you see that, there's no way that you can look at our God and say that he's the same as them. Yes. Like our God just continually shuts down kind of yep. the other so. Yeah. He's very explicit and even implicit at times to point out how different he is than, than every, other, every other God. And so there is no all, all paths lead to God. If, if if that's true, then God is schizophrenic, because he would say it's okay to do this, and then say it's not okay to do this, and say it's we should worship this and then say don't worship that, and it would be a very schizophrenic God. Good point. Uh one more Lowell. God gave us memory, you mentioned on the day, I all Yes. 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 Yeah, remembering, remembering God. In fact, the, 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 the Hebrew word for male, um, in, in the Hebrew word for male is this idea of to remember what God has said in order to do what God wants. It's this. It's this basically this divine remembrance is, is, is the Hebrew word for maleness. It's kind of interesting. Um, but it's true of all of us. Um, it's a character. It's, a, it's an issue. That, that we all we all have, and god is is big on so here's here 's a homework. Lowell gave it to read deuteronomy eight uh, sometime at time tonight. Let me pray God thank you for thank you for the gift of of memory, thank you for um, your word, thank you for uh, a place to be able to talk about the things that you 've done and, and who you are, and God, I pray that we would walk out of here. Um, with a clear understanding of who you are and what you've done and with a clear understanding of now who we are in you because of that and God I pray that it would lead to action it would lead to living for you, living set apart for you and, and, and for your glory and others benefit in our own joy in Jesus name, Amen